Welcome to the Audiobook Speakeasy. I'm Rich Miller, and I'm your host here at the Speakeasy. This is where you'll meet narrators, coaches, engineers, and other audiobook professionals, as well as some listeners who'll be sharing what they look for in a good audiobook. If you're interested in audiobook production, you've come to the right place. So come on in, grab a drink, pull up a chair, and join us for a friendly chat about audiobooks. Joining me tonight in the Speakeasy is an audio editor and engineer who has worked on many, many audiobooks and has a great reputation in not just the audiobook world, but in the voiceover world in general. Karen Sauer, thanks for joining me in the audiobook Speakeasy tonight. Hey, great to be here. Glad you could make it. What are you drinking tonight, Karen? Uh, 12-year-old single malt scotch. Oh, no kidding. Which one? Um, It's made by the Balvenie. It's a Scottish distillery. It's called the Doublewood because they age it in two different, um, like a sherry cask and a whiskey cask. Sounds it's great. Delicious. Sounds great. I, uh, I'm pretty familiar with Balvenie. I actually follow on Twitter one of the uh, brand ambassadors for Balvenie who also does cool. the, uh, the Whiskey Topic podcast. Um, Jamie Johnson, I believe is her name. And, uh, it's good stuff. I've got their 14 year old Caribbean cask cause they had it at uh, Costco at some point and uh, it is good stuff. Huh? Well, uh, another VO talent by the name of Jeremy Vore, I was at a Fafcon a couple of years ago and he's like, you have to try this. And ever since then it was my, I wanted to buy a bottle and I had a really busy month and I was like, you know what? It is time to reward myself. So. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a great reward to me, and it, and that's another another check mark in the in the pro column of the VO community is that somebody can recommend a twelve year old Scotch and and you can reward yourself with it. Heck yeah! <laughs> Good stuff. Well, I'm I'm joining you tonight with a Vesper, which was uh, which was James Bond 007's initial drink before he before he got into the. Uh, the martinis, shaken, not stirred. And uh, it's similar to a martini, but <laughs> instead of vermouth, it's got uh, Lillet in it. And actually, the the way that mm. I make it is not with Lillet, because back in the 80s, they changed their uh, their recipe to not include whatever it had, whatever it used to have that, have that uh, made it a little bitter. And instead, I use something called Cocky Americano, which is pretty close to the original Lillet. And, uh, and so that's what I'm having tonight. So I'm really glad you could cool. make it to the speakeasy tonight, and uh, cheers. Cheers. <laughs> all right. So uh, I imagine that you work for voice actors all over the states and maybe even all over the world, but where's your home base? I live in southwest Pennsylvania in a little coal mining town called Uniontown. A little coal mining town. So what is it that, uh, that prevented you from going into coal mining? <laughs> well, I'm not from here. I uh, I am originally from Illinois, actually, but um, I moved here uh, after um, I had a few life difficulties, and this seemed like a nice, uh, homey sort of place to start over. You know, that's nice. Go and uh, I have I've learned I've learned a lot, honestly, about the coal mining industry while being here. And I gotta say, like. These are some people who have had it tough and like you got to put your hats off to them because they've had an inter- interesting uh, run in their industry over the past few decades, you know? Yeah, no kidding. It's kind of like so, the, uh, the steel industry had, had problems as well. So, um, so that's, Very similar. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, what part of Illinois did you grow up in? Big city Chicago or someplace else? Well, um, I actually bounced around a lot. I was born in the Illinois area, but... 
to put it in perspective, I've moved 18 times in 35 years. Oh my gosh. Um, I'm 35. So yeah, I've, I've lived in a lot of different places and I only lived in Chicago. Um, it was suburban Chicago outside of, outside of the city, um, for the first five years of my life. But dad, my father, a voice actor by the name of Bob Sauer, um, kept getting better jobs in radio. (laughs) Ah. So, you know, first it was the Christian Broadcasting Network. Then it was, you know, um, I think he was the operations manager at a radio station here in Pittsburgh. And then Billy Graham in Minnesota. And then, you know, down in North Carolina with Billy Graham also. And then he went full-time VO and um, eventually ended up coming back up here. But my own moves have been sort of together and separate with the family. It's, there's been a lot of, like I said, a lot of bouncing around. Yeah. Sounds like it. Sounds like, uh, I, I've never heard the term before, but instead of a military brat, sounds like you were a radio brat. You know, it's funny whenever I tell people how many times I've moved, they're like, is your family in the military? I was like, no, just radio. Yeah. It's going to be the first <laughs> thing anybody guesses. I'm sure. Pretty much. So do you have any uh, brothers and sisters that grew up moving around with you or was it just you? Um, well, I'm the only child of my father's first wife, Kathy, who died when I was five. So I have three younger half brothers. They're much younger too. So we had kind of a different growing up experience. Um, Eric, David, and Brian, who are eight, 13, and 15 years younger than me. So, you know, at my age and at their ages, it's just, it's kind of almost like a different world in some ways. Yeah, I'm sure. They like, sometimes they come to me like an aunt, more like a, than a sister. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. But does, do you get along with your, with your stepbrothers? I mean, they're good. They're good men. You know, they're good men. They're, um, all, you know, solid guys. My, um, it's, it's, it's gotten a lot better as we've gotten older. I mean, I think that's pretty common, you know, when you're little kids, you're fighting over toys and things and, you know, being, uh, um, nosy Parker, but you know, when you get older, you can engage with each other as adults. Yeah. That that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I know that we, we had some friends growing up, uh, and their kids were, their kids were spread pretty far apart. There were three kids, but there were five or six years between each one. And there were some, mm-hmm. there were some major tensions uh, between them. Like you said, you're, you're fighting over toys and you're fighting over things because somebody's older now and they don't really like to do the same kinds of things that you like to do and vice versa. So that can be difficult. Mm-hmm. But as you get older, I, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure it's pretty common that uh, those little differences kind of fall by the wayside. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, time is a great uh, addition to perspective. <laughs> Very true. So you mentioned your dad. I know that uh, he's a big VO star. <laughs> yeah, he definitely has um, his 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 fans. It's funny, you know, when I was little, he was in Christian radio and he uh, anchored a countdown show um, that was run every week. So I had, when I was little, I had the experience of, you're Bob Sauer's daughter. And now it's like, (laughs) Oh, Bob Sauer, he's great. So it's, it's like, it's, it's a very interesting sort of full circle type of thing. You know what I mean? Um, cause I had people all the time, Oh, your dad's so great. I'm like, I know, but you know, (laughs) so you said that he, um, he did a countdown show. Do you mean like a, like a top 40 music kind of thing? Yeah, basically the Christian music version of a top 40 type deal. 
Wow, how funny! Live and learn. I didn't know even know there was such a thing, but of course, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, it was it was bigger years ago. I don't know if they still run that stuff or not, to be honest. Mm-hmm. But you know, back before like digital music and things, it was still like it was still a thing. Big deal, yeah. So you moved around a lot. Mm-hmm. Did you uh, did you go to school? Uh, did you go to college someplace? Um. <laughs> I did actually go to college. I got my degree at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, um, interestingly enough, in English and theater, because I used to want to be a stage manager many years ago. Wow. Um, And then I realized that I didn't love the idea of having to hunt for gigs and having to, like, fight for it, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, at the end of my college career, I tacked on an English major because... It's the only other thing I could think of that I like to do. And um, I didn't get into this business right away afterwards, as you can probably imagine. Yeah, I'm guessing. <laughs> um, but it's actually kind of interesting because, um, well, long story short. So uh, several years ago, six years ago now, my um, my dad came to me and I, I've, I've always done little bits of helping stuff with him a little editing, a little, what he calls script directing, basically like, um, you know, he's reading his script, recording it, and I'm on Skype and reading along with him. And if he makes a mistake, I tell him about it in real time. It's kind of like live proofing. Sure. Yeah. And um, I did that with him. And, you know, so he comes to me and my brother, Eric, and he says, guys, there's this conference called FAFCON and I want you to come with me. And we said, uh, okay, because he was paying for it, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Hard to turn that down. Right. So I, you know, at the time I was working in a deli and I was pretty dang unhappy because, you know, (laughs) deli customers are like, give me this meat and cheese, blah, blah, blah. And I went (laughs) to this conference and it was such a revelation because everybody there was happy to see me. They were happy and they loved the idea of working with me. Cause my dad said, you know, come do what you do for me for everybody else. Ah. And it was just such an amazing turnaround because I was like, I can work with people who are happy to talk to me. And it was just, it was, <laughs> it was just like the sun dawning over the horizon, you know, revelation ding. And, you know, basically I never looked back um, after that. That's great. And have been, yeah, it's been quite a journey. But, you know, the funny thing about the stage manager, now, for people who are not familiar with theater, um, after all of the rehearsal part of the theater, when the play is getting put together, a stage manager is the one who kind of organizes everything. They say, okay, lights go on now. And, okay, you know, set change happens now. So they, they sort of are the ones who do the moving and the, the shaping during the actual production. And it's not too dissimilar from the work that I do now because really like I'm the kind of the behind the scenes person. So it's funny. I feel like I can translate my previous life into my current one. That's a plus. Yeah. Yeah. I have, I have nothing, but I have nothing but the utmost respect for a good stage manager. Having been in many stage productions myself, it's often a thankless job and, um, you have to be the one who is riding herd on all of the actors, which let's face it as a creative bunch can 
It's easy. For, <laughs> it's easy for that to get out of hand. Um, and they have to make all the rules Sometimes. and they have to try to enforce the rules and they have to get everybody to do what they're supposed to do all without people then becoming belligerent and upset about things. I, I have worked with some phenomenal stage managers and I, my hats mm-hmm. are off to people who can have that kind of job. First to arrive, last to leave. Exactly. It is definitely <laughs> <a unique quality>. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. So, um, so that's great. I've, I have heard nothing but good stories about Fafcons. I have not had the pleasure of going yet. And, uh, I was so bummed. Uh, one of them, I think it was, it was either two or three years ago. It was here in Tucson, my hometown. It was at a really nice resort. And, um, I followed it at the time cause I was just getting back into VO and I understand it uh-huh. was amazing. Unfortunately, at that time, I was just getting back in, and I really didn't have the credentials that I needed to be able to even apply for a spot at FAFCON. Not that I would have gotten in mm-hmm. anyway, since I know that they get something like five or ten times the number of available slots, people applying. But um, but I heard it was great, and I have heard nothing but great things about every single FAFCON that I have ever heard about. So I think that's great that, that your dad took, took you with him. So you mentioned that when you went... He said, I want you to do the same thing that you're doing for me, for other people. So what were you doing for him at that point? At that point, um, I was doing a lot of little things. Like I was um, doing the script directing thing. I was doing some editing. Um, You know, dad at the time, you know, he didn't, he's always had been lucky enough to have a pretty quiet space. So he didn't need too much in the way of engineering per se. That's actually where my education lacked is like all of the, you know, setting the levels, measuring the space, you know, Amanda Rose Smith type of stuff. Mm -hmm. That's the only place that I don't have education for. I'm actually planning on going back to school for this um, when I get the the necessary dollars. Oh, that's great. But well, yeah, I mean, you know, I want to keep getting better. I want to keep, you know, I want to be able to say, yes, I can do everything that you need. And sometimes I have to turn stuff down because it's stuff I don't, I genuinely don't know how to do. And I'm not going to re- misrepresent myself, you know? Yeah. That's, um, that's great that you take that kind of a stand and you're, you're willing to turn work down because you know, you can't handle it. Yeah. I mean, at the last FAFCON, I had Simon Vance asking me an engineering question, you know, and he's a pretty big name in the audiobook world. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, dude, I'm so sorry, but I don't know. And I explained to him where I come from, which is the kind of just basic, you know, cut and, you know, cut and paste sort of editing. And I mean, I've moved beyond that and gotten better than that. But, you know, like I said, the the fancier end of things, you know, the George Whittem and all of that sort of thing, that, like I said, I just don't have that background yet. Right. But you will. But, um, but I will, um, Oh, right. You were asking me what I did for dad at that point. But yeah, like editing, proofing. Um, I did actually a little writing for him at the time because he was producing a weekly radio show and I helped him write his intro scripts because they all needed to be just a little bit different. That's cool. Um, Yeah. And I mean, kind of in the beginning, I was kind of flailing around a little bit because I did a little bit of everything for everyone, but I've kind of distilled down after that because I had to realize as nice as it would be to say yes to everybody for everything, that's not a good idea because there's stuff I genuinely don't know how to do. Sure. Um, and, if, and if you do it badly, then uh, that's going to get around just as well as what you do well. For sure. For sure. 
but yeah, like I said, it's been definitely a very big refining process and um, a learning process and just training my ears and, you know, getting better tools and listening and learning and like always being open to new things. Sure. Yeah. Sounds great. So I'm, I'm curious about whether or not the, um, when you graduated from, from, uh, college, uh, North Carolina, I think you said, did the, um, Mm -hmm. did you actually have the English degree as well as what you had gone in for, or did you just get the English degree or how, how did that all end? Oh, I had a, I had a double major. So, so you had the, you had the theater English and, and English. English. Okay. Um, yes. So have you found that the English degree has come in handy for the work that you do now at all or not? Um, not really directly. It actually can be kind of frustrating sometimes because, as I'm sure you know, both audiobooks and things like e-learning scripts can be written rather poorly. Oh, yes. And I've had to rein myself in from sending an email to certain authors <laughs> who need to hire an editor. <laughs> Yeah, I've and, reined myself you know, in a few times as well. <laughs> I'm sure. I mean, it's, you know, I totally get writing for a living is hard, but like, you know, it's, I tell people the same thing with voiceover stuff. It's like, this is your product. You want to put the best freaking product out there you can. Sure, yeah. Because people are going to remember. And if you want to someday move on to bigger and better things, you know, you better shine up that product as best you can. Otherwise, why are they going to want to hire you or, or pay for your stuff or whatever? Yeah, no, it makes a lot so. of sense. Um, so, but you do find it uh, helpful maybe indirectly. I know that for me, I look back at it and I got a math degree way back in the dark ages. And um, I, I look at <laughs> it and I think, you know, day to day, no, I don't use my math degree. One of my favorite classes was... Um, Oh, what was the non-Euclidean geometry? I loved that class. It was it was really interesting and it oh. was really fun to think about this this stuff. And it's like has has just no application in the real world as far as I'm concerned. Uh, maybe somebody who is an uh-huh. expert in non-Euclidean geometry could school me differently, but it feels like it has you know no application in in the real world. And there are a lot of things about my college experience that I think yeah don't really use it day to day, but I think that indirectly it has really helped in my, you know, in going forward in, in the career that I've chosen, even though that has nothing mm-hmm. to do with math. Well, I would say the one advantage to the English part of my background uh, is in that I've always been an English opponent, a good reader. And with the proofing side of what I do, that is very helpful because to proof well, you need a pretty high reading comprehension because you have to be able to hear and eyeball match, you know, when there's a missing and or an it's or a that or whatever it might be, Sure, you know, and that's not always all that easy to do because you really kind of have to split your brain in half, you know, in order to hear it right. Or at least that's how I think of it. Yeah. Um, I'm sure everybody else has their own visual metaphor. (laughs) Yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense. So the work that you do now, I mean, I know that you do audio editing for audiobooks, and I believe that you do audio editing for other things as well. Like you mentioned e-learning. What, what's the split like these days? How much, how much of your time do you spend? How much of your work time do you spend on audiobooks? I would say pretty heavily the majority of it because it's just that much work. You know, I mean, I do uh, one of my clients, um, frequently gets like enormous nonfiction books from Tantor that are like 17 hour long books. Uh, you know, that's a good two weeks. Sure. Yeah. So, 
you know, but I do, but I do like to try to keep up with the e-learning and, you know, the social media stuff and sometimes research and things because it helps fill in the gaps like around those things. And it helps, you know, it, it, it gives me some variety for my mind. Cause it's, you know, if I did the same thing every single day, I'd get bored. Yeah. So it's, it's nice to help keep my, uh, my mind stimulated. Yeah, no, I hear that. I, I feel the same way about the narration. Sometimes I, I like the fact that Mm-hmm. It's not just a matter of working on multiple different projects at one time, but it's a matter of uh, being able to go and not narrate for a while and do something else uh, that is still related mm-hmm. to the business that I'm trying to build. Uh, just because, uh, you know, spending 60 hours straight on one book, eh, that can be difficult. It's not that it can't be done. It just tends to get a little tedious sometimes. Yeah. And I mean, giving yourself a break can mean better narration over the course of the whole thing because you know that kind of fatigue i mean people like me can hear it you know Uh, i mean when people get bored with their book i'm like yeah um you need a little need a little break and a little pick-me-up gun dude (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm listening and i don't care anymore either (laughs) so Uh, so do you do all of your work at home or do you travel to studios i mean i i figure if you live in a small coal mining town it's probably not a big audio production hub not so much no um i do all of my work at home i i have a uh a second bedroom in my apartment and so i have my own little office and everything which, you know, is nice for tax deduction purposes and also because I can close the door when I'm done with my day, you mm-hmm. know? <laughs> yep. I know that that can be a problem. Nice little... Yeah, that, that can be a problem working at home. I was going to say psychological benefits. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I hear that. And I've heard that from, from several people. And I know it's true for myself as well. Um, it's, it's hard to separate sometimes. And if you have a way to do that, then... And, and if you have the, um, the discipline to do that and say, nope, not going to work anymore. I'm done. Close the door. That, that's a big plus. Mm-hmm. It is also important to do things for yourself, too, because, you know, honestly, I find I work far worse if I don't, like, go sit down and play a game or go write a story or go do whatever away from the computer for a while. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that, I think that that's always true, no matter what line of work you're in, is that if you don't take time for yourself, if you mm-hmm. don't, if you don't have kind of a... I don't know, well-rounded life, then, uh, it's the work is going to suffer at some point. Mm-hmm. So your dad was probably your first client when it comes to voiceover, but now you've got lots of clients, right? Do you, do you work with people all over the world mm-hmm. or is it almost entirely the U S or, uh, what's, what's the breakdown like? It's mostly, it's mostly the U S. Um, I have a handful of clients in Canada. Um, and you know, people come and go, I have a, a client in Europe, a couple clients in Europe, actually, but most of it is pretty much the U.S. I would say least probably the West Coast, um, because, you know, out there is still plenty of studios and things for people to go to. Although, I mean, there really, there really are all over. Yeah, at this point, VO has gotten pretty darn global. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. So I I assume that that with what you do especially in audiobooks but in other genres as well like well not even so much e-learning. I guess mostly in audiobooks uh I'm sure that you've seen a lot of different kinds of material in the time that you've been doing this. It's probably all over the map. <laughs> are there any uh are there any topics or genres that are out of bounds for you? Any anything where you think 
I don't agree with this, or I think this is bad for society, so I won't play a part in getting it published or anything like that? Um, thankfully, I haven't run across anything um, in the socio-political arena that I would find really like was just a no full stop. Mm-hmm. I mean, I did do some things that were kind of sleazy, like I did a Tinder instruction manual once that was just kind of like, <laughs> eh. but you know, I, the only, I mean, honestly, uh, you know, I've done a lot of romance work. There's so much audio books that are full of romance. Yep. And the only thing that, you know, I would say that's a total no for me is stuff that's non-consent. Mm, right. Um, cause I mean, that's just not, that's not okay. I, it's it's a little challenging, like I said, in the socio-political sphere. I tried to, I had a friend advise me once and she said, you know, is this something that you're going to feel bad about over time? Like, is it something that's so much of a bother that it's not going to go away, that it bothers you that you did this? Mm-hmm. And if the answer is yes, then don't do it. But, you know, if you just are kind of having a yucky feeling for that day, you know, take your money and move on to the next gig. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a that's a great question to ask. I hadn't really thought of it in those terms. I know that for the most part, I mean, I've heard this before, non-consensual sex and um, for some people just erotica in general. Uh, and there are a few other things where people have a problem and say, no, I wouldn't do that. That That's a good question to ask. I haven't heard it put quite that way. It's not just a matter of how do you feel about doing this right now? It's a matter of how are you going to feel about this a year from now? If you're going to continue to look back on this and think, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. Uh, and it's still, it's still going to make you feel bad later. Uh, that's a good question. Yeah. I, I felt like she really did hit it on the nose because, you know, a lot of, it's so easy to react with our emotional brains and just be like, ew, no, 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 no. And then, you know, later it's not, it wouldn't be as big of a deal because emotions wear off. Yeah. You know, I mean, if it contravenes your morals, of course, don't do it. Right. But I'm just saying like, if it's that kind of uncomfortable, ew, you know, it might not be the end of the world. No, that makes a lot of sense. There are a lot of things that, uh, you know, are just seem kind of, kind of icky at the time. But the fact is that, uh, later on it's like, well, I don't care if somebody listens to this, nobody's going to get hurt. They're not going to feel bad. Everything's going to be fine. The fact that I feel uncomfortable with it, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. So yeah, that's, that's a great question to ask. So, so walk me through what you do on a project. So someone has said, I need to hire an editor. I need to hire somebody to proof my work. Um, what, what is it that you do exactly? Uh, proofing, editing, mastering, how do you go about getting to that final product? Well, um, the first thing that I usually do is I ask my two most important questions, which is how long is it and when is it due? Because I'm usually working on multiple projects at the same time. And that way I can make sure that I'm not too overloaded on a particular week because it's happened to me before that I've had five or six books do the same time. And then everybody's project suffers and I don't want that to happen. So, you know, I start out there, you know, and then I get down into the brass tacks of what exactly they need because, um, you know, some people do punch and roll. Some people don't, some people are peculiar about their breasts. Some people want to make sure that the proofing is like word for word exact you know, some people 
they do some processing on their own end so that, you know, I get um, not quite raw audio. I mean, there's a lot of questions to kind of define the project because, you know, everybody's a little bit different. Like we all come into this industry from a different place. I mean, I've known ad execs, retail people, marketers, you know, tons of radio, of course, uh, singers and theater people, everybody has a different angle. So it's like the vocabulary and the background and the way you approach the process of audio is always really different. Then, you know, we figure out how they're going to deliver me files. Um, Dropbox is a common one, for example. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I go through whatever it is they need. Um, If it's a full edit proof master, I go through the editing and um, as, as, as I finish that, um, I give them usually back a marked script, which says, you know, there's like a, a highlight that'll say, you know, you made a mistake here at 1923 in the file and you said Apple instead of Able right. or something so, like that. So you're looking for punch-ins at that point. Right. And I, I, as I'm editing, I drop a marker in the file wherever that is. So when I'm putting in pickups, it's just going from marker to marker to marker, mm-hmm. um, speeds it up a ton. And then once I get the pickups in, um, then is usually when I master the WAV files. And then usually I convert them to MP3, get them uploaded, and, uh, you know, away we go. So do you, do you use uh, RX-6 or anything similar? I do actually use RX-6. Um, I usually run like the decrackle and the mouse denoise. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes a little bit of EQ because sometimes people have like that bottom line of noise that bumps everything all around. So I, I find like if I take that slice off the bottom, it um, it can help with certain files. And sometimes there's a need for some denoise and things like that. So, you know, that's definitely a great way to sort of uh, dust out the corners before the editing really gets started. Sure. Yeah. And then for mastering, do you pretty much master to ACX specs or any specific specs other than that, better than ACX or anything else? Well, I mostly master to ACX specs because I mostly work with ACX narrators, but if I'm working with someone else and they need that, you know, I just say, let me know what the numbers you need me to hit are. And, you know, I will get it there. So. Yeah. Well, that's good. That's good. So what, what do you find is the most common thing that derails that process? I mean, what, what should all narrators here in the speakeasy avoid doing when they hire you or any other editor to, uh, to proof and edit and master their audiobook? Well, um, sometimes, uh, when I would say, if I would say things that are under the control of the narrator, because sometimes things happen in people's lives. Like a lot of people sometimes have a day job and stuff or, you know, family, um, the commitments that will take up a lot of their time. I think time management is one of the more important things because it just takes a long time to narrate, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it takes a long time to do the whole dang thing, but you know, if I would say, be careful with your time management and be sure you give yourself extra time in case something goes wrong. Mm-hmm. because meeting and exceeding those deadlines is a great way to get your name out there to be consistent. 
I mean, thankfully, most narrators who've been at it a while have figured that part out, but it happens to everybody. I think sometimes, like I said, things that people can't control. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm actually glad to hear that from somebody who's, who's looking at it from your perspective, because it has certainly been true for me and you're right. I learned as I went and I have, uh, at this point, I always bake in some extra time. And like right now I've just gotten <laughs> over or I'm, I'm still not completely over, but I've, I'm getting over a cold and it kind of got into my chest and you know, that affects my breathing oh. and it affects my voice. And right now I'm sounding almost back to normal, but I know what I sound like and I know what I don't want to sound like. And I had right. no idea I was going to get this cold. And yet the projects that I accepted several weeks ago, I knew that I could have gotten them done several weeks earlier than I agreed to. But I requested a, a later date thinking, I don't know what's going to come up. And holy cow, it came up. And so um, I can see how time right. management for especially the newbies is um, really kind of a surprise, kind of a shock when all of a sudden, well, but I can't get it done because I can't even speak anymore. <laughs> and I would say sort of on a comforting note, you know, for every single narrator I've ever worked at, they have something they don't like about their voice, whether it's their mouth noise, their breathing, their spit, their nose farts, I mean, yeah. whatever. Nose farts. Oh, that's and great. I, have... I thought I was the only person who ever used that term, <laughs> but that happens to me. I'm listening back and I'm going, I know that that came from up in my sinuses. <laughs> <laughs> well, but what I was going to say is you need to not be so self-conscious because everybody does something else. Like mm -hmm. no one is alone in whatever their thing is. Right. I mean, because... One thing I can say about having worked with a sheer variety of people is just that everybody has some kind of goofy whatever. And we're just so used to um, zooming down into the individual little microseconds that we hear every little flaw, mm -hmm. but flaws are normal. Noises yeah. are normal. I mean, sometimes people are like, why didn't you take out more clicks? I'm like, because everybody has clicks. Mm -hmm. You want to take out the ones that are big that will distract someone and pull them out of your narration. But, right. you know, the little side of the mouth, whatever that just happens. So what? That, you that, know? Yeah, I think that's exactly it, is that you want to pull out something that is distracting and is going to make the listener think, oh, I just heard a click. What was that click? Oh, it was probably from what he was speaking. Instead of hearing something going along and just taking it as part of what they're listening to. So I think the distraction is, is right. the big important point there. Uh, and I, and I hear that a mm -hmm. lot. I see that a lot in the, the forums online when people talk about breathing and I have listened to audiobooks where there's, <laughs> there's little to no breathing. And I just think it sounds kind of odd. Yeah. I mean, because you're subconsciously listening for a normal human <gasps> You know, exactly. You're whatever. a person, you're a person and, narrating this. You're, you know, as a person, you're going to be breathing. And it's just, I mean, I'm not saying, you know, you need to be breathing like a steam engine, but you know, some breaths every now and again are perfectly natural, especially in dialogue. Yeah. You know, yeah. because if someone's talking, they're going to stop and, you know, mm -hmm. normal breathe, but you know, you can get away with clipping some stuff out in um, like descriptions and things. Sure. But yeah. Yeah. yeah, I just, I, I know what you mean. I don't listen to audiobooks outside of work, but I've had people be like, take them all out. And I'm like, 
Why? Yeah, <laughs> I, I I really try to try to like you know gently push people in the other direction. I I shouldn't put it that way. I I don't try to get them to leave all breaths in first. I try to get them them to learn how to breathe correctly so that it's really not a problem. And after mm-hmm. that, I I just say you know some breaths are okay. So yes, of course. You want to take out those breaths that are distracting and you can hear them. So somebody's speaking and it's the end of a paragraph and then you hear the next paragraph and it's like, no, that's, you definitely don't want it. No listener wants to hear right in the middle of when you're, when you're doing something, but in the middle of a sentence, or like you say, especially in dialogue, as you have actual people speaking, there's no reason to get rid of the breaths. Mm Mm-hmm. So, Absolutely. I yeah, the ones that sound like Darth Vader need to come out so, <laughs> for the rest of the Absolutely, day. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're in complete agreement there. So you talked <laughs> earlier about uh, punch and roll or somebody who's done open recording. So it sounds like you work with multiple different methods, you know, people who are doing punch and roll using either Studio One or OSIN Audio or uh, Reaper, whatever the tool mm-hmm. might be. And it sounds like you also work with people who do open recording, um, either with a clicker or without or with some other method. Um, how is that? Do you, do you charge differently or do you consider one much more work or uh, how, how do you view that? Or do you try to recommend to people that they not open record? I do definitely prefer punch and roll. Um, and most people do it, especially as time has gone on. There's gotten to be less and less people who do the open record at least the ones who work with me. Um, you know, I, I it, de- the retakes is definitely, the open record is definitely more work. It also just depends on the person because um, one thing I find interesting, uh, narrators who come from the commercial world tend to be overly fussy about how they sound because, you know, from what I understand in commercial VO, you have to literally shade almost every syllable with, you know, they want you to inflect the end of the word or the beginning of the word or the uh, middle of the word. Right, and you're supposed right. to worry about all that stuff. So people who come from commercial VO will do a living crap ton of retakes. Uh. <laughs> and that, that, is, that is definitely more work. But, you know, a lot of other people will just do it if they screw up. Mm-hmm. you know, or if they flub a word or whatever, and that's not as big of a deal. I think it just, it depends on where you come from and what you're used to. Um, like I said, I just, I find the commercial VO people to be a little more enthusiastic with trying to make sure that so-and-so sounds just perfect. So. <laughs> So your dad, I know he's done a ton of audiobooks, but he's done a lot of other uh, VO work as well. Um, has he done a lot of commercial work? Um, you know, I know he does some, but I believe his way of putting it was that he wanted to avoid what I believe is called the golden handcuff. Ah, uh, yes. Which is that, uh, well, I guess you know what it is, so I don't need to explain it. But, um, you know, that... He, he just, he likes the money, of course, who wouldn't, but he wanted the flexibility of like an audiobook deadline where you have a greater amount of time to get things done. Sure. And, you know, if you want to go on vacation, you can go on vacation. Yeah. So. No, I, I, I hear him and I'm, I'm actually in the same boat. I, um, 
I have thought many times about trying to pursue promos and I might still, um, you know, everything, the way that I look at it is that in terms of career, everything's up in the air pretty much all the time. And so I'm, I, I might actually (laughs) pursue that because I actually am really interested in promos, but I think that promos Mm -hmm. is one area where the golden handcuffs are, uh, really, really clear because they expect people, you know, day after day, they have to be available three, four times a day, whatever it is for whatever promos they're going to record. And um, I've, I've always been a little bit cautious for that reason. Now, like I said, that doesn't mean I won't pursue it at some point um, because I, I am interested. I think that it's really kind of fascinating being able to do a commercial mm-hmm. for a program and, and be able to do it really quickly. I, I think it's a re- kind of a really interesting field. But, um, but you have to be careful because then if you're not available, well, I'm going to be on vacation for a week. You could be out of a job when you get back. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. I remember hearing, yeah, my dad told me some story. I forget who it was, but he said, you know, somebody was like 10 minutes from home and was like, I can be home in 10 minutes to do this. And they got the next guy. Wow. You know? Like it was literally, they couldn't wait 10 minutes. Yeah. And, you know, I mean... Like I said, dad is just, and I mean, he's, I will, uh, the thing I will say about my father is he's really good at the nonfiction audiobooks. So I think that's why he sticks to them so much mm-hmm. because he's good at making like, for example, a, uh, in, a, an encyclopedia of jazz songs <laughs> sound actually fairly interesting. Wow. You know, he just, he manages to find I don't think it was an encyclopedia, but it, oh no, it was a history. That's right. It was a history of jazz music mm-hmm. and it was relatively dry, but he managed to make it sound pretty interesting because that's just, it's something he's good at. So um, how many of his audiobooks have you worked on? Do you know, have you kept track? Uh, I don't have a specific number off the top of my head. It's gotten less in recent years because I do so much work with other folks, but you know, oh, I don't know probably 40 or 50 a lot. Yeah. I know I he know. has, he's, he's done a lot of audiobooks, and I know that a lot of them are, are oh, yeah. nonfiction. So almost all he did a little fiction back in the back a few years ago, but he prefers the nonfiction because he doesn't really like character work. Uh, um, it's not, it's just, it's just not his preference. And he feels like, you know, that being, one of the few people who's known for specifically doing nonfiction means that he's part or close to the top of a pretty short list. Sure. Yeah. Um, that's always good. If you find a niche that not only you're happy with, but that the people, the the clients that you've had are happy with you, why not go with it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yep. Makes a lot of sense. So what's, what software do you use uh, primarily? I, um, well, like I said, I use the Isotope and I also use, um, Sony SoundForge or well, it's now Magic's SoundForge or some such. Um, the company got the, the software got sold to a different company, but SoundForge to be specific, mm-hmm. I just upgraded to, um, the, uh, version 11. So do you always use the same software or does it vary depending on project or what the final specs are or what type of work it is or anything like that? Um, I pretty much stick with SoundForge. Dad, back when I first got started, Dad gifted me a copy. Um, and I so I learned on that, and I'm most familiar with it. Um, eventually, I would love to purchase and learn some other types of software. Um, I just, it's it's been a, 
funds and time kind of issue, you know? Oh, yeah. Isn't everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I know that's the way a lot of us look at even hiring editors uh, is, well, I have the time and I don't have enough work to be narrating all the time, so I guess I'll just do this editing myself. And I know that's that's not always or not usually or... Some people would say not ever a good choice, um, but I know that that, that happens with well, a lot of people. I mean, I would never tell somebody to take bread out of their own mouth, but I would say that even if you don't have the next book down the pike to be working on, you know, that's when you're doing auditions or sending mm-hmm. out query letters or researching what's this cool author in the indie world who has a big following and I can do their audiobook. Yep. you know, because that's, that's the thing that, you know, editing and outsourcing in general bring to you is it brings to you more time to make more work happen, even if it's not there. Yep. You know, like I, like I said, I totally get that some people literally just don't have the funds, but you know, if you, if there's any way you can swing it and I mean, yeah, obviously I get paid to do this, but I really do believe in making people's lives better. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's a, that's an important part of what I do. Like I told you that initial happiness was such a big part of why I wanted to do this. And it still is because by doing this stuff, I get to make people happy. I get to make people have a better career, a better life, a better experience with their audio. And I mean, that kind of feels really good. Yeah. So <laughs> no, I, I hear you. I, I completely agree. I remember the, I did a, um, I did a couple of short stories in an anthology for Dion audio earlier this year. And it was so Mm -hmm. great to be able to do the narration and ship it off. And then a week later, they sent me back something saying, here are the mistakes. I recorded them. I shipped them off. I was done. It was great. (laughs) It it really did. I don't don't know how to put it, but I, I I like the way that you put it, you know, you're making the life better. And and that's kind of the way it felt. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great, Karen. So, so what else about editing? Anything else that you can think of that uh, everybody here in the audiobook speakeasy might want to hear about working with an audiobook proofer, editor, masterer? Um, well, I would say it's important to know what you need. It's important to know what you're looking for because we all work in our little, you know, our little rooms or our little booths or whatever. And it's easy to think that whatever you do with your audio is normal and that everybody does it. Mm-hmm. To give you an example, this is an e-learning project, but I worked with a client years ago who, um, when I was uh, editing the slides and the e-learning, you know, I was doing a fairly standard sentence length pause at the end of the slides. And he said to me, why are these all the same? And I said, I just, you know, I thought that was a good space and he said but I like to make sure that the spaces are different lengths so the listener doesn't get bored Hmm. and I said okay because see to him that was something to be concerned about and I'm not saying that he's not you know right in his own way that's not I'm not gonna that's not my concern but I'm just saying like you know, we all have our little things that we get stuck in our own heads. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why I, I, I was talking about like always being open to learning because, you know, I mean, how much has the industry changed in the last 20 years? Oh my when, God, completely. You know, we've gone from, right, going from into studios and 
recording and, you know, now everybody's doing everything at home and, you know, now everybody's scared about um, computer voices replacing us and mm-hmm. stuff. And, yep. you know, it's just, it's, everything is changing and it never hurts even for the most hoary old veteran there is to keep an open mind and keep learning, you no, know, I, I can, and, I um, agree more. And I, you know, for any audiobook narrator, I would advise trying to read outside of work as much as you can, because you're going to make less mistakes if you're a better reader. And the only way to get better at reading is to practice, especially reading aloud. You know, if you have kids, you know, read them stories and stuff or record, um, record books for one of those charity outfits, uh, the, um, Learning listen to a book or there you go. Mm -hmm. I I knew there was another L. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it really does make a difference. And, you know, get coaching so you can be confident in your characters. Mm -hmm. You know, know what these, you know, figure out how to figure out how to make all these people say what they're going to say. Because the better you are on the button, the more easy and smooth my job is. Sure. You know? No, you're you're right with no. how much things have changed, and I imagine that they're going to change. Uh, I can't even imagine how they're going to change in the next ten to twenty years. Um, you know, whether it's music backing tracks or full cast recordings, or uh, I mm-hmm. I don't I I can't even imagine what is going to be happening ten years from now. So I look forward to finding out. I, I'll bet you do too, and by then you I will can. have gone through a. A uh, an audio engineering program, and uh, and you know, I'm sure things will change in the software area as well. For sure, for yeah. sure. Well, that's great. So, Karen, where can people find you online? Um, you can go to my website at karensour.com or email me at karen at karensour.com. Cool. And you have a blog too, don't you? I do. It's not been updated a lot recently, but I do have some pretty decent archives, if I do say so myself. That's good. Yeah, I've read some some great uh, great posts that you've had on your blog in in the past. Not recently, but uh, last year at some point. Yeah, I I, uh, I read some good posts there. Well, that's great. Thank you so much for coming into the audiobook speakeasy. I really appreciate your time. Hope the Balvenie Twelve Double Wood was as good as my Vesper. Oh, it was wonderful, and thank you so much for having me. Sure, yeah, my pleasure. I will. Uh, I think the next bottle of Balvenie that I get will be the 12-year-old Doublewood. So thank you for the recommendation. Oh, you're very welcome. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Karen. No problem. Well, that's it for tonight. Many thanks to Karen Sauer for stopping into the audiobook speakeasy for a chat. If you're in the market for an audiobook proofer, editor, and or masterer, be sure to look Karen up. She does great work. You can find the audiobook speakeasy on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean, and all the apps that pull from iTunes. And you can find me at richvoiceproductions.com, where I've got some samples and links to audiobooks I've narrated, a place where you can sign up for my monthly newsletter, and where I'm also posting episodes of the audiobook speakeasy. If you're enjoying our speakeasy chats, please leave a review on iTunes. And if you're not enjoying them, please find a podcast you do enjoy and leave them a review. If you think this show is educational, entertaining, or valuable simply because it gives you an excuse to sit down and enjoy a cocktail in an otherwise hectic day, I'd really appreciate it if you could visit patreon.com slash audiobookspeakeasy and donate a buck or two. Until we see you here at the Speakeasy again, I hope you can find some time to enjoy an audiobook. Cheers! (laughs) 